Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue of November the 4th to the 10th. I'm Richard Lane. We're doing our podcast early this week to coincide on November the 1st with the online launch of our series on sexual and reproductive health, a massively neglected issue in global health. On October the 30th in London, we held an embargoed launch to this series. Here's our editor, Dr. Richard Horton. My name is Richard Horton. I'm from The Lancet and uh, you're very welcome this morning to the launch of our series on sexual and reproductive health, which is an issue that's been increasingly marginalised and is largely invisible from the international health agenda today. When you look at the authorship of these papers, it's across all continents, Europe, North America, the Middle East, Latin America and Asia. And I don't think we've ever published a series of papers that's been quite so international as this current series. But why have we put together this series on sexual and reproductive health? And why sexual and reproductive health right now? Uh, Mainly because it's an issue of incredible intrinsic importance to the lives of women in the world today. But also, and this is where it's particularly neglected, I think, it's a critical foundation for many of the other issues that are supposedly top of the international health agenda. Whether you're looking at the Millennium Development Goals, poverty, maternal child health, or HIV. You can't deal with any of those issues unless you have a proper strategy and set of programs to tackle issues surrounding sexual and reproductive health, which makes it all the more remarkable and disappointing, incredible really, that sexual and reproductive health issues have fallen off the international health agenda. In fact, they're taboo for many governments today. Uh, Sadly, actually, taboo for many public health institutions today. And that exclusion from the agenda puts millions of women's lives at peril. Progress since a turning point in the international focus on sexual and reproductive health, which was in Cairo in 1994, progress since 1994 has been uneven. It's been incredibly slow. There's been very little political commitment Uh, around these issues since then, and far less money has been devoted to mobilising further resources to support sexual and reproductive health services. And that failure, failure on everybody's part, has condemned women and men to greater risks of HIV AIDS, unwanted pregnancies, and unsafe abortion. And so what we want with this series and what we want The Lancet to do is to be a catalyst to reignite a commitment, to mobilise further resources, to scale up cost-effective interventions and also to revitalise political commitment, which has been lost over the past decade. So I'm going to first of all start with uh, Professor Anna Glazier, who's going to give you a little bit of background to the series and some of the issues that are covered. Anna. Okay, thank you, Richard. We've put together a series of six papers on sexual and reproductive health. The first is a sort of overview of the problem, the magnitude of the problem, the morbidity and mortality associated with sexual and reproductive ill health, and the reasons why we think that the topic has fallen off the public health agenda. There are then four papers in the series on specific issues in sexual reproductive health. The first is on sexual behaviour, and Kay will speak to you about that. 
Then there's a paper on family planning, the lead author of which is John Cleland. The next paper is on unsafe abortion, the lead author is David Grimes. Then there's a paper led by Nicola Lowe on sexually transmitted infections. And then finally a call to action by a number of big names in sexual and reproductive health led by Mahmoud Fatala from the University of Asyut in Egypt. We've deliberately dealt with issues in sexual and reproductive health that we think have been forgotten or neglected. So we haven't included things about HIV-AIDS. We haven't included things about maternal mortality. I want to talk a little bit in more detail about the reasons which, which we detail in the first of the papers in the series about why sexual and reproductive health has become neglected. And if I take as an example family planning then there are a number of reasons why family planning has fallen off the agenda. The first, I think, is complacency. In the 1970s and 1980s, when large-scale family planning programs were being set up in countries around the world, they were stimulated by the fears of overpopulation. And I remember when I was at school, we were desperately worried about overpopulation. But now, governments aren't so worried about overpopulation, and governments, particularly in developed countries, are in fact worried about underpopulation in their countries and particularly about uh, too few young people to look after the rising numbers of old people. I think the second reason for complacency about family planning is that people think that the problem has been solved. The prevalence of family planning around the world has increased. There are more and more people in more countries using contraception. There are a dozen methods of highly effective methods of contraception. But this belies the fact, as John Cleland points out in his paper on family planning, that there are many countries around the world where there are large numbers of women and couples who have very limited access or no access to any family planning methods. And if you take Africa as an example, then 18 of the poorest countries in Africa, only 1 in 10 women or less, is actually using a method of contraception. And Niger, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, the total fertility rate is still eight. So although there are success stories in family planning, there is still an awful lot of unmet need, and that's one of the things we wanted to highlight. I think one of the other reasons why sexual and reproductive health family planning, and STIs particularly, have fallen off the public health agenda is because of HIV-AIDS. And HIV-AIDS has eclipsed the other other parts of sexual and reproductive health, not just in terms of the funding that it attracts and, if you like, has taken away from other areas, but also in terms of the services which are being provided and the staff in these services who are now being diverted into HIV-AIDS and taken away from family planning and the care and treatment of other sexually transmitted infections. And, of course, HIV-AIDS is important. But there are many countries around the world where the prevalence of HIV is still extremely low and where unintended pregnancy, other sexually transmitted infections apart from HIV, cause enormous morbidity and mortality. And if you just take syphilis for an example, there are one and a half million, over one and a half million women in Africa who have syphilis who are pregnant every year. And the perinatal mortality rate associated with maternal syphilis is 40%. And we never hear anything about those women in the newspapers at all. There are 4,000 babies born every year blind because their mothers had gonorrhea, and yet gonorrhea is one of the easiest conditions to treat. But these things have been forgotten because of the the magnitude of the problem with HIV-AIDS and the skill of of the people working in HIV-AIDS advocating for these issues. 
another problem, I think, with sexual and reproductive health is that it is difficult to talk about. Richard said it's a taboo subject, and it is a taboo subject. And the Cairo conference included reproductive rights as well as reproductive health, and many countries around the world find <laughs> reproductive rights a difficult concept to handle. In many countries, it's difficult to think about sex, let alone talk about sex and provide services for sex, unless it's occurring between a man and a woman who are married and who are only having sex because they want to have a baby. And that makes sexual and reproductive health a difficult issue. And it's difficult even for some developed countries. It's difficult particularly for the United States. And the policies in the United States have made life more difficult for sexual and reproductive health in recent years. The US used to be a major donor to sexual and reproductive health and a major supporter of family planning programs. But now, because of the US's discomfort with sex and sexuality and sexual behaviour, their contribution to sexual and reproductive health has dwindled. And in fact, you could argue that their policies actually now make access to sexual and reproductive health services and to contraception more difficult in many countries around the world, and access to safe abortion even more difficult than it was before, and it was already extremely difficult. The paper on unsafe abortion highlights the scandalous statistics relating to abortion around the world. And I'm not talking about the numbers of abortions, I'm talking about the numbers of unsafe abortions. It's a very difficult figure to estimate because it's not something that people want to admit to and the data aren't collected. But WHO estimates that 19 million unsafe, unsafe abortions take place every year and 68,000 women die every year from an abortion. Now, I've talked about millions and so maybe 68,000 doesn't sound like a lot. But to put it into perspective, if you imagine that every woman who had an abortion in 2006, who was living in Scotland and Sweden and the Netherlands, died because of that abortion in 2006. That's the number of people that die worldwide uh, from unsafe abortion. So what do we hope to achieve from this series? Well, we hope, I think, that the publication of the series in arguably one of the most prestigious medical journals of the world will raise the profile of sexual and reproductive health once again. We've actually tried to be quite provocative in this series, and I think we've succeeded in being provocative. We've, we've given the facts about sexual and reproductive health, but we've also given a lot of passion in the series about sexual and reproductive health. And I think it's notable that we have uh, a commentary from a minister of the UK government, which also speaks passionately about sexual and reproductive health. We hope, then, that the series will embarrass some of the governments that have lost interest or are even taking an obstructive stance towards sexual and reproductive health. And we hope that it will stimulate more interest among countries which aren't in that position and who could play a bigger role. And we should highlight the role that the UK government has had and that Scandinavian governments and that, and that the Netherlands have had and have had for a very long time in supporting sexual and reproductive health. But we need more countries in Europe uh, and we need countries in other parts of the world to be more proactive and to champion sexual and reproductive health. And finally, we hope that by producing this series and by disseminating this uh, very impressive and very heavy booklet around the world to ministers of health and to academics, we help, hope that it, it will once again 
encourage people to think how we can achieve universal access to all in sexual and reproductive health. So I hope you enjoy reading it. We've enjoyed producing it, and we're rather proud of the final version. (laughs) I'm going to hand over to Professor Kay Wellings, who is the lead author on the second paper in the series on sexual behaviour in context. Kay. Good morning, everyone. As Richard said, my job was, our job was to bring together the global evidence on sexual behaviour. Um, and this was um, no mean task, I can tell you. Um, Richard's just told me, I think Anna just told me, that this was the heaviest and the longest paper that's been in the Lancet. And it's not surprising, because sexual behaviour in the world is a fairly daunting task. Um, and it took about 40 people in a room at the WHO, really, to advise us on how to do it. And so we're grateful for all the, receipt, the uh, advice that we've received. Um, so it was a tall order. And I have to say that the end product is rather impressionistic. Anna said that the taboos around the world were obstructive in providing services, but they're also obstructive in collecting data. And many data sets have missing bits. They have women missing in some parts of the world, men in others. Young people, single people are missing. Data sets don't exist for many countries. And certain topics are completely off limits uh, in some countries, notably um, homosexuality. So it's a fairly partial view, but I think that um, it's certainly my view, and I think it would be the view of most people, that um, the data from as good surveys as we can get are better as a basis for interventions than are suppositions and guesstimates, and uh, they're very often wrong. And as proof that they're wrong, uh, we say in the paper that we think, in the discussion we say that some of the findings we think will raise a few eyebrows and create some surprises, and we do that because we ourselves were surprised. We were expecting to see higher levels of uh, sex amongst very young people. We expected those to be rising across the world, and we didn't see that. Not across the world. We saw uh, increases amongst men, but not women. Uh, We had expected to see that those areas with the poorest sexual health would also have the highest levels of risk behaviour, and we didn't find that either. Multiple partnerships are more commonly reported in industrialised countries than they are in others. So it was quite clear that um, we had got, we'd got some fairly misguided impressions from various sources, uh, perhaps because we base many of of those who are creating the strategies for sexual health are themselves from developed countries and make assumptions based on the data from those countries. Um, okay, now we've been very lucky with this series and we've, in that we've enjoyed a fabulous collaboration with colleagues at the World Health Organization who've been incredibly brave to say some of the things that they've said in this series, um, not just specifically uh, in relation to programs, but also in taking very principled stands against some of the conservative opposition to raising issues surrounding sexual and reproductive health. So it's a particular pleasure to introduce... Joy Pumafi, who's the Assistant Director General at WHO, and she's going to say a few words about the series too. Joy, very Thank welcome. you, Richard. I, I really want to express how excited we are in WHO, uh, those of us who work in this area, but uh, most importantly, how excited the global community should be over the fact that we are, we are at last highlighting and bringing 
focus, attention, and methodological structure to an area of, of global health that we ignored for the past, I would say, about 10 years, maybe because we felt that we had given it enough attention. And I think one important message that comes out of this series is that reproductive health is dynamic. Reproductive health is a, is a challenge which will remain with us for as long as humanity exists. And re- reproductive health is essential to, to human development, is essential to economic growth, essential to the evolution of society as a whole. And that the same importance that we gave to reproductive health when we put, when we put in place population uh, councils in countries that were responsible for determining um, the rate at which education programs were growing, uh, public health care programs were growing in, in, in communities, where we, we related the rate of population growth very, very closely to economic growth and to household expenditure at community level. That that is still relevant today. Those same arguments are still as relevant today as they were in the 70s and as, as they were in the 80s. We are still having families who, because of lack of access to, to reproductive health services, are having more children than they can afford to keep. And this is increasing poverty levels and is making it very, very difficult for these countries that are currently challenged by uh, inequities currently in trade, inequities in access to resources, inequities in distribution of resources, for them to be able to to meet the the requirements of this increasing uh, bank of of human resources that they have because of lack of access to, to reproductive health services. And I think this is a very, very important message. Another important message that comes out of this report, this this series, is that though HIV-AIDS is central to human development, and though we have been able to cost the impact, the macroeconomic and the microeconomic impact of HIV-AIDS on our societies and our economies, it is important to to appreciate that it, it is a subset of the reproductive health challenge, only a subset, and that there are other subsets of the reproductive health challenge which are equally expensive. We have examples in this series which demonstrate, for example, the cost of unsafe abortion in Nigeria, for example, costing it at, it is estimated to be at about, is it 19 million US dollars? And when you when you think that not every woman who has engaged in an unsafe abortion is going to have access to a health facility one, and even if they do have access to a health facility, few of them are going to report where it is criminalized. So when you think that with, with the limited number that do report, you are going to have such a high cost, it really gives ministers of health a very, very strong economic argument to give to ministers of finance and planning when they justify investment in reproductive health. Because nobody can argue with the fact that it will be much, much cheaper to make reproductive health services, family planning services, available to these mothers and available to these families so that you don't have the 5 million new infections of HIV-AIDS every year at the rate of 6,000, uh, sometimes per for, for day for young people, and so that you do not continue to have this high cost of dealing with unsafe abortions, this high cost of dealing with debilitating conditions such as of fistula, which can be easily avoided, the high incidence of uh, HPV, this series clearly demonstrates that 20% of women are going to, to have HPV. And 20% is a huge number of women. And we know that this is the, the primary cause of cervical cancer. 
and we, we, we already know how high the incidence of cervical cancer is. So we feel that the messages that come out of here actually give the development community a much stronger case and give the ministers of health a much stronger case and will enable us to justify the proper positioning of reproductive health within the, within the development agenda. We, we have been looking forward to something like this. I mean, as a, a public health agency, one of our weakest areas is that of advocacy. And we, have, we are really excited that the Lancet and our friends uh, around the world, who uh, the global uh, reproductive health experts, have taken this on as their own agenda. I feel some of the most important messages that have already been given to you, those, the, the social uh, misconceptions and the, the impact that, uh, that lifestyles have on, on reproductive health, and therefore the need to empower those members of our community that have got less economic power, that have got a, a, a weaker voices in sexual relations and the, the reproductive health intercourse. We have committed ourselves, together with the Secretariat and the partners in this uh, initiative that is in the Program of Research Development and Research Training in Human Reproduction, to use this launch as the beginning of a global campaign over a 12-month period, where we will go to all the corners of the globe, to the 193 member states of, of WHO, and strongly advocate for the proper positioning of reproductive health within the global health agenda, within, within the global development agenda. And I would like to thank you for making this possible, and thank the Lancet, and thank our colleagues, and I uh, assure you uh, that WHO will continue to work as aggressively as we can possibly do it within our mandate in this particular area because we feel that uh, without reproductive health, the global health agenda and, and health for all is not feasible. That was Dr Joy Pamafi from the World Health Organization concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoy reading our series on sexual and reproductive health. See you next week.